All right, well, this morning we are moving further into a series that we are unpacking over the next uh, several weeks, uh, I'm sure. And before I read the passage that we're going to spend some time with, and quite a bit of what we're talking about in this series is going to come out of this passage in John chapter 15. You can find your way there. But you know, it's strange. This is the day that we live in. And none of us are exempt from this. I don't want to act as though the unspiritual people in the room, this is the only people that this applies to. This, this applies to every last one of us. Our world has an ability to find its way into our bloodstream. And I hope nobody here is thinking they're so heavenly minded and they're so spiritual that that's just not true of you. It, it, it's just true of all of us. It's why the Bible interacts with us the way it does. And so when the Bible stands up this big giant concepts of how important something that the Bible speaks about is, the battle for us is to, is to realize, does this topic matter very much to me? Seems to matter to the Bible a lot. Does it matter very much to me? And so I, I want to I join something together because this is just true. <clears throat> God did not intend for us to have an individual existence that doesn't get attached to something else besides itself. So when we major in the things that make us who we are, right? We're, we're trying to figure out, and I know this is, this is how we live our lives, right? We're spending time trying to figure out our identity and what's going to be really meaningful for me. And we try to explore that as young people and see what kind of gifts and talents that we have. What do we excel at? What's going to bring satisfaction to my life? And that can become like golf, right? It can become an individual sport. And it's just about me figuring me out. Can I just tell you, if you don't figure the larger context, beginning with the creator who made us, if you don't figure that out, you and I can never figure ourselves out, ever. We can start thinking we have figured something out about ourselves, but we can never figure ourselves out. So today we're going to read a passage where Jesus sets up an illustration. It would have been very common to them. He's going to, he's going to interact with a vine and they would have had lots of vineyards around them. And so they would have been very familiar with growing vines and fruit and what these purposes were about. But he's going to pick these pieces up and he's going to, he's going to interact with our identity. So whatever we think we are, in God's economy, we're a branch. Right? So this is what we're going to learn today. John 15, verse 1. <clears throat> I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, when you stop and ponder, these are identity words. I wanted to hear how many times the word you is used in this. Jesus 
speaks to each one of us over and over and over again. And he brings definition to our lives. I don't know if we woke up this morning or last week when it was really hectic and busy thinking apart from the vine, I can do nothing. Whatever I got going on today, am I plugged into something that's going to provide an ability for me to do whatever I'm doing? Think about your life. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the father loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. There's so much here. I'm not going to take a lot out of this passage today, but just think, why is Jesus interacting in this storyline in our lives? What is he after? Well, these things I have spoken to you. Why Jesus? That your joy may be full. So in other words, can my joy be full when I turn my spiritual life into a golf game that doesn't need anybody else but me swinging the club and perfecting whatever it is that I do as an individual and discovering more about me and more about me and how to get life to kind of be fitting me? According to Jesus, no, you're going to need these things. If you want your joy to be full, what I'm telling you is critical and necessary. And he goes on in verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you and you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give it to you. Let's pray. Father, rich words, much to discover about this existence that we have been given in our lives. And Lord, thank you for a moment this morning for our busy, noisy, do the next thing life to be interrupted and just gathered before you just to sit at your feet and say, Lord, could you just take a moment with us and explain some of these things to us because we lose sight of them so quickly. So Lord, thank you for your living word. May it live in our hearts enliven our lives to what you say brings us joy in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So this is, this is a heightened discipleship moment, right? When you zero in to, to John chapter 15, you are in a unique set of passages beginning in John 13 through John 17. It, it's like the gospels cover this three year period of Jesus public ministry, but John 13 to 17 covers 
several hours and it slows down and it focuses in on this, this last evening together. This is Jesus' last evening being spent with his disciples. Jesus, what would you like to talk about? It makes everything leap to me when I read anything in that section. It's like, Jesus, of all the things you could have said, this is what you spent a great deal of time helping people to understand. And then John 14, before he gets to John 15, there's this explanation that this, this new thing is about to happen. I'm going to leave you, that rock their world, this powerful Jesus and his ministry and his teaching. I'm not going to be here anymore. The new deal is the Holy Spirit is coming. And he's going to be in you. And they don't fully get this, right? They're just picking up bits and pieces of this. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. So, so this is not going to be, a, you're not going to be abandoned. So their curiosity is piqued. And now he's going to explain to them, this is what your life is now going to be like. And he picks up a vine or he points out a vine to them. Perhaps they may have been on the move here in that part of the evening. And he highlights discipleship through a vine. Now, I want to get to one particular piece of this, so I'm going, to, I'm going to fly past some things, and we'll come back and pick up some of this. But here's the parts that get to be played, right? So there's a play about to go on here, and everybody's got a part to play. And Jesus highlights, I'm the vine. So Jesus is the vine. You are the branches. And so there's something really critical about that relationship, right? You... you if you've watched a plant grow, you know how critical that relationship, a branch and its vine, uh, that's critical. But we'll, we'll come back to that. My father is the vine dresser. And that's where I want to live this morning. Because there's a particular character in this story who is in our lives. And he needs to be understood a certain way. Right? A vine dresser was the, the gardener who oversaw the vineyard. So when you walked up onto a vineyard, you know, this is not some wild growing, nobody's tending to it, you know, some random seed produced this vineyard. Nobody's paying attention. No, this is a vineyard that someone owns and there is a goal in mind and there's a, a vine dresser who's interacting with this vineyard. So we get introduced to the father as the intentional vine dresser in our world. And I wrote this out in your outline, rather critical. God's got an agenda. He has something in mind. He has a strategy that's seeking to be accomplished. This is a critical insight, hear me, for today's person seeking spirituality. God is not a passive and dispassionate force in our universe that you and I just sort of tap into and invite some kind of spiritual invigoration and feel good thing like God's a, a battery force that you and I can just kind of feel in our lives. No, God is personal. He's a vine dresser. He gets up in the morning and he's got stuff to do. He's trying to accomplish things. He's got an opinion. He wants something. He is steering and influencing and ordaining the things that exist toward a particular end. I don't want to assume this, but does that mesh with your understanding of God and of human existence? Over the years, and our culture has perfected this, uh, 
God has slowly been turned more into a vending machine in some form of customer service than a vine dresser who planted this whole place and had an outcome in mind and is inviting every leaf and every branch to participate in what he had in mind. Instead, God today is a higher power that we try to figure out how to tap into him in order to get him to be a part of what we have always had in mind. That's upside down, isn't it? We're not the vine dresser. We've got a part to play. And, and Jesus said you would have joy in your life in playing the part that I've given you to play. That's where your joy is going to be. Don't long for another part. Don't try and be something different in the story. You are a branch. You're not the vine dresser. You don't get to be in charge of the destinies and the outcomes of the vineyard. That's the vine dresser's job. And we observe him doing things in this passage, right? He's, he's got branch management going on in this vine dressing. He, he awakens, if you will, to the day to pay attention to what's going on, what's growing out of the vine, what's not growing out of the vine. He's going to tend to that. You know, this is a depiction of the God who is not deistically distant. You know, there's this idea that there's a, there's a God out there. Sure, he created everything, but he's not really involved in our lives. No, he is, he is providentially present in his world. That's the vine dresser. And there, there's some technique being applied here. Can I use that word, technique? God is using technique. There's certain things that he is specifically doing. So there's a, there's a pronouncement in this passage about you are already clean. I'm not going to unpack that, but there is something about what God has accomplished in his vineyard that makes a pronouncement to us about us being clean before God. So something is done in this passage, and you'll find that elsewhere in, in John. He describes cleanness in another place. Most commentators think this is leaning into the coming teaching that's going to be in the rest of the New Testament on justification, that there is something God has done to just make things right between us and him. Done deal. So, so that's done by what Jesus has done for us. But then there's other stuff going on. If you go back and read that passage, and we'll go back into it further, there's this practice of abiding that is necessary. There's an if hung on our activity. If you abide in me. If my words abide in you. So there's something that is done, and then there's something that's being done. And dependent, can I just say this? Dependent on my personality and your personality is how we feel about those two things. Because some of us don't like the idea that anything just got put on me. Well, something did just get put on you. Don't make the mistake, because this is how you'll fight it off. You'll fight it off by saying, well, I know that there's nothing I can do to make me right with God. I can't be more righteous. You are absolutely correct. Don't waste your time there. But this verse is putting something on you. If you abide in me, and if my words abide in you, because this vineyard is after something. The vine dresser, he's after something. And there's a means through which we get to that destination. 
So there's, there's technique here. There's abiding. There's pruning in the program here. And we'll unpack that further. But pruning is going to be a confusing thing because it is, it is addition by subtraction. That's what it is. Pruning is God interacting with our lives and he is intending strategically, technique-wise, to add things to our lives, but he's going to do it by taking some things away. And that's what it's going to feel like. And so you're in a moment of faith, and this is true in our lives right now because some of us could be in a pruning moment in our lives, and what it feels like is things are going in the wrong direction. Things are being subtracted in my life. I don't like the way this feels. I need these insights because when God breaks out the pruners, faith in me needs to rise up. Say, okay, this is reduction for the sake of addition. And I just need to hear the technique there. But here's where I'm wanting to land today. In this passage, there is a goal in mind. And there's a reason here as well. The goal gets stated in 15 verse 8. By this is my father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What's the goal in this passage? Fruit bearing. I chose you, verse 16, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. So the vine dresser is after something. He is after branches that produce fruit. That's the goal. So as God interacts with our lives, he is after something. He is after fruit being produced through our lives. But there's a reason here. And that reason is more important than the goal. The reason here is that my father may be glorified. And this gets down to the very basics, to the most ultimate aspect of our existence. This answers the question, why? Which is a very good question. You know, we're doing life. Good times, bad times, hard experiences, good experiences. And, and we're asking the question, why? And this passage is revealing the question, why? All right, so all this stuff is going on behind the scenes. There's strategy in God. The vine dresser's showing up. He's got pruning clips. He, he's doing things. He's fertilizing. He's managing. Why? Ultimately, that the Father may be glorified. Now, let me, let me just stop on this ultimate element just for a moment. It's easy to lose ultimate things amidst the consuming routines of everyday things, right? Just next thing you know, you and I are just doing life. We're just busy. We're getting up. We're taking a shower. We're traveling back and forth to places. We're doing jobs. We're, or we're getting educated so that we can have jobs, so that we can raise families. And we're just doing stuff. And churches start just doing things, right? There's, there's a schedule here. We can, you can look on our bulletin and there's stuff coming up there's activities there's there's meetings that we're having there's teaching that's going on there's there's outreaches happening there's a lot of stuff happening but but why why are we doing any of this stuff personally or as a church because this is a series about discipleship and individual disciples who participate in it so i wrote in your outline there in all of existence, something has to be ultimate. Something has to be ultimate. There has to be an ultimate cause 
for reality to exist. If you just pull on the thread and say, why that, why that, why that, why that? At some point, something has to be ultimate. And there has to be an ultimate reason for meaning to exist in our lives. So have you considered that? Have you considered that for your own life? That your existence and the reason for your existence, if you pull on that thread, where does it go back to? Just pull on it long enough. Does it ever just get beyond my own hopes and thoughts and plans? When I was a kid, I had this idea and this dream that I wanted to be, and I just kind of constructed life would be great. And so now I'm, I'm 47 years old, and I'm, I'm living out of an idea that got started in me when I'm 13 years old, and, and, and that's, I'm just seeking to fulfill. Is that the thread? Is that as far back as it goes? I pull in this thread that this is who I am. This is what I'm doing. Why, why do you and I exist? Why does the church exist? What are we doing here? Why are you here this morning? I was just here, just trying to hear a, a pep talk, you know, so I can go back out and, and just have a better week this week. I just, I just want it to be a better week. Say something that I can remember, Keith, that's going to make me, you know, just be happy in traffic. Something. I mean, so... Is there something deeper going on? Well, yeah, there's something ultimate going on here. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology says, God created us for his own glory. The fact guarantees that our lives are significant. When we first realize that God did not need to create us and does not need us for anything, we could conclude that our lives have no importance at all. I, I know that's a little weird thing to hear. Because we turn God into one of us, and he's just not one of us. So does, does it kind of flip you upside down to hear that God doesn't need you? It kind of weirds me out a little bit, you know. I want to be needed. I'd like to think somehow God needs me. Unless that's different than God loving me. That's different than God having a purpose for me and a design, which he absolutely does. But God didn't create because he was incomplete. God didn't take action because there was something lacking in him that he hoped something out here would fix. So he created a world and it's got all this texture and color and stuff. And then he put people in it because he's just hoping something out there is going to fix him. And that's our story. That's not God's story. But scripture tells us that we were created to glorify God. Indicating that we are important to God himself. If you want to find the center of why your life matters, why you matter, it's because God created you with a purpose. He had a purpose in mind. And that purpose <clears throat> is about his glory. This is the final definition of genuine importance or significance to our lives. If we're truly important to God for all eternity, then what greater measure of importance or significance could we want? The fact that God created us for his glory determines the correct answer to the question, what is our purpose in life? Our purpose must be to fulfill the reason that God created us, to glorify him. All right, now just curiously roam into the categories of your life right now. Put your hands on anything. 
your property, your belongings, accomplishments, achievements, moments, seasons, and settings of your life. Put your hands on any of those things. Why does that exist? Well, according to Scripture, for the glory of God, the Creator. God blatantly explains this many, many places in Scripture. I'll just give you a running, running start through a few of these thoughts. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, verse 7, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. There's, there's intricate detail here. There's intricate design. God formed, shaped individuals uniquely with hair color and eye color and height, personality, abilities, talents, gifts, design in them that God put there. Why is it there? Now, if you detach that unique design from this, what, what we're learning today, you will come up with something that has no steering mechanism to it anymore. All those unique things, nobody's got an explanation for it. But God says, I did that because I'm the creator and I had something in mind. And I uniquely made man and you as individuals because I had something in mind. The creator had something in mind. Do you ever pursue your own life? I don't mean, you know, you know the, the problem with comparison you know, we, we stare at people's lives. How come I'm not that? Why didn't I get to be that? Why does this person get? Do you ever stare at your own life with the curiosity about everything that makes you a unique individual? Do you ever stare at it and just go, God, what did you have in mind? That's a nice way of saying, God, what were you thinking? <laughs> That's how I feel sometimes about myself. God, what were you thinking? Um, but there is a design in mind. There's something about you, there's something about us as humanity, but there's something about you as an individual formed by God that it's right for you to be curious. You're not an accident. You are by design. And so it's an appropriate question. Lord, what did you have in mind? Well, ultimately, he had his own glory in mind. Habakkuk 2 verse 14 says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, right? We're going to come back next week to fruitfulness, but God is giving away. What does it mean to even be fruitful? Well, when the earth gets filled with something, it's going to be the expression of his life. It's going to be filling the world with the knowledge of the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Boy, what if, what if that, just that one line, defined everything about us? Every time I reached to touch anything, made a decision about something, interacted with life, I said, wait, wait, let me just first consult this. Let me do this for one reason, ultimately, for the glory of God. Simplify things, might make things hard, but it would simplify things. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. 
1 Peter 4, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So there is something for humanity to be stewards of in our lives. We're, we're stewards of something. And we will give an account to God for that. I know that doesn't feel like, ah, oh, no, I'm just this independent golfer. If I have a bad day, I have a bad day. It's just me. Oh, no, 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 no. You have looked at your life through the wrong lens. There's a creator. He created you uniquely for a purpose. The ultimate purpose is that we would glorify God and we are stewards over whatever it is God has put in us that one day will answer to that purpose. Now listen, this is a great philosophical point, but I want to pull you into the fact that it is a critically necessary, functional, practical, everyday issue in our lives. I have a little section I put in your notes there. The hour when this matters the most. If you're living beyond childhood, you have figured out life sometimes wanders into difficult and disorienting places, does it not? If we're disciples, then being a disciple will also wander into difficult and disorienting places. And in that moment of difficulty and disorienting, we flirt with the question, why, a lot. And there are moments when you come across stories that, in the scriptures, in the Gospel of John, the disciples come upon a man who's blind, and they're asking why. Remember that guy? Jesus, how'd this happen? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? That's an interesting approach, isn't it? Even back then, people did the blame thing. Well, it's not new for our culture. And Jesus kind of shocks them with the answer. Well, neither. This, uh, this man is like he is so that the works of God might be displayed. And that is what the Bible says. This is, this is why, as a church, our theology is God-centered. We use that phrase, and we use it a lot intentionally, because the question was framed out of a man-centered posture. What did man do that created this? Did this guy do something that created this? Did his parents do something that created this? This is not a positive condition. This is not a person that we can easily explain and saying, the guy is wealthy beyond measure, never been sick a day in his life. Let's ask the question, did man do this or did God do this? And then we don't mind visiting that situation and saying, well, God did that. This one's a little harder, isn't it? This is a person blind from birth. And the purpose is that God receive glory. Now, if I'm going to preach the Bible, I don't get to edit that. I don't get to change it into something that we would like it to say, that we would like for God to be at a distance from this thing. God didn't even know this was going to happen. God didn't know that was going on. And somehow somebody messed up. Well, we, Jesus already eliminated that 
This is not because somebody messed up. This is because there's a divine purpose in the vineyard that God is tending to. Remember the, the day that Jesus' good friend, Lazarus, Jesus gets the report that Lazarus is sick and dying. Jesus ultimately knows what's going on here. Those in the story do not. They just know this is really, really, really serious. Like on the verge of Lazarus is going to die any minute. And the grief, the heartache, the pain that they're going to experience is going to become real because he's going to die. Jesus is going to say, well, he's falling asleep. Well, our understanding is he's dead and he's buried. And, And you ask the question, Because remember, Jesus intentionally, intentionally doesn't show up on time. Jesus, why would you do that? You ever ask Jesus that question? God, there's an issue in my life. It's got some timing involved in it. If you don't show up by this moment, something's going to die. Some opportunity for me, something's going to die here. And so we begin to define the character of God, the goodness of God out of a sense of, hey, what's your timing going to be like? Because my definition is you're a good God if you show up by this moment and Jesus intentionally doesn't show up in that moment. And the Bible goes out of its way to describe this to us. John 11, this illness, Jesus said, does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Before we get indifferent towards Jesus, and this is, this is the way Jesus interacts with life, this, this is Jesus highlighting something that has ultimate importance in our lives. He lived his life underneath the shadow of that ultimate importance himself. Before we get to this last evening in John 13, John 12 records Jesus saying this in verse 27. He says, Now... Is my soul troubled? And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it Again, and you and I know this is on the doorstep of the last evening that leads to the crucifixion of Christ. Unless you and I only think of the crucifixion in human terms, which was painful spikes driven through the wrist, blood loss, suffocation slowly on a cross. But what Jesus was in touch with was the wrath of God is about to respond to human sin And he is going to absorb it and receive it himself. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's what he meant when he said, now is my soul troubled. But notice what Jesus is after in the moments in which his soul is as troubled as it's ever going to be. I don't know if Jesus has another category that is more troubling than that. And in that moment, what is ultimately he after? Father, glorify 
your name. And there's a temptation here. It's acknowledged. What, what, what should I pray? What should I ask for, Lord? Save me from this hour. Right? That's, if, if this was my story and not Jesus' story, that's exactly what I'd be praying. God, this looks horrible. I, I can't think of a worse scenario. This looks extremely painful. Uh, I, I just would prefer something else be done, God. I would be saying, God, could you just make this thing go away? And unless you're more spiritual than Jesus and the Apostle Paul, you and I live in that category. I mean, there was a moment for the Apostle Paul where he didn't just think about asking God to to change the course and make this thing go away. He prayed multiple times and asked God, God, there's this thing called a thorn in my flesh going on right now. Uh, my definition of this thing is it's not good. It's painful. I don't know where this is headed. This looks like, you know, if it's spiritual, it looks like the enemy, whatever it is, I don't put the label good on this. So God, can you get rid of this thing? God, can you change this thing? God, can you remove this thing from my life? So the apostle Paul is praying into his circumstances and saying, God, make this thing go away. So if you and I pray that way, we're in pretty good company. And into that moment, God speaks something. Paul, I'm doing something in your life. I'm in this. I'm I'm the vine dresser. And I know that if I bring this kind of pruning into your life in this way, you're going to manifest my power in your life. My power is being made perfect in your weakness. Now, Paul doesn't get that on the front end of his praying. But on the back end, he does. And then he becomes cooperative. He realizes, ultimately, my life is for the glory of God. And so if it's through insults and pain and difficulty, then God, for your glory, let it be. And Jesus will interact with this again in the Garden of Gethsemane. When he draws aside and he is praying and he is sweating drops of blood as the intensity of God's judgment is about to fall on him in our place. And he's going to pray again, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And then what's ultimate is going to prevail in his heart. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And this is the discipleship that Jesus invites us into. No man can come after me unless he denies himself, takes up his cross, and follows me. At some point, the ultimate will of God for his glory is going to get contrary with what is comfortable, safe, familiar, and hopeful for me. It doesn't mean it's not glorious. It just means I don't necessarily see how glorious it is. And I could spend a lot of time saying, God, where are you? Why are you doing this? Take this away. This is nothing but bad. And Jesus submits his will to another will. And if there's anything about discipleship that may be lost in our day, it is that. It is the recognition of coming to God means coming this way. Open, surrendered, 
letting his will be come my will over and over and over again. Wrote a note in your notes there. When ultimate purpose encounters the individual. God is always having an ultimate purpose. Always. There's never been a moment in the created order that God didn't have an ultimate purpose. Creation doesn't always want to get in line with that. So here is the one of the ultimate descriptions of individuality that you will find in all of Scripture. It is what I would inform you is Satan's declaration of independence. Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. This is, this is the description of what Satan's interior was like. This is the impulse that he found within himself. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, above all the other angels, above all the created order that God has made, I will ascend above all that. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. See, Satan was not created to play golf. He was part of something else. He was part of a tapestry that was going to display the glory of God. And and he was uniquely made into that tapestry. He would probably stick out. There were some things about him that would have caught your attention as you gazed out at the other angelic beings. It wasn't that Satan was created so that the attention might go to him. He was created that way so that the glory would go to God. But he didn't want that ultimately in his existence. He wanted what belonged to God. He wanted to set his throne where God's throne was. He wanted his individual story to be a certain thing. And in this moment, this declaration of independence, he he relocated defined roles. Now listen to me carefully, and you'll get this in a second. There was a defined role here. You are an angelic being who has a purpose. There's a boundary for your life. Stay in the boundary, Satan. And he chose not to. There was defined activity in the earth. It was called worship. He was a being designed by God to worship God and to help bring forth the worship of God. That's your role. I don't want that role. I mean, you do get, this is what's going on right here. I don't want that role. I've got some other ideas. Really? Where'd you get those from? Well, that's not important right now. I just have. And I say that because I can't explain where he got these ideas from. But he's an individual who is rewriting God's story of creation. And he's saying, no, I think I was meant to be more than this. 
I don't think the boundary lines were supposed to be right here. I think they were supposed to be over here. So I'm going to move them. I don't think worship is supposed to look like God is portrayed it to look like. I think it's supposed to look like something else. I'm going to move that too. All right, now you and I get to cheat and go behind the scenes. We know there's a creator who created him. And we're asking the question, why does he get to redefine himself? Well, that's what fallenness and sin does. It wants to reject the creator and come up with its own plan. Ultimately, this is why we use the term God-centered. This is a battleground for what's going to be in the center. What occupies the center that then has the privilege of defining everything else? Is it, is it God-centered that everything got defined? So when you put your hands on anything that exists in the universe, people, activities, Gifts and talents, moments in time, every one of those things answers to what glorifies God. This thing exists for the glory of God. But if I am man-centered, I relocate the center. I pull it over here and I, and I make it more to answer to me. And since you're kind of like me, I might make it answer to you as well. And so what would you prefer? How would you like creation to unfold? How would you like this task, that thing? What would you like that to be like? Well, I, you know, kind of, I didn't know I was taking a lesson from Satan, but I, I kind of like to have a little bit different role. I'd like to do something different. I'd like to be something different. I'd like what's meaningful in life to be something different. Wait, wait, Satan, I got to believe the greatest joy of your existence is worshiping the living God. But you bought the idea that the greatest joy you could have was being worshipped. And you and I are still fighting that battle because the same guy who thought that way sold it to us. So when you and I interact with this lie, it is a lie of recentering things. It is moving things from where God located them to another center. All right now, let me pick the lightning rod in our world right now. And that would be anything pertaining to sexuality. Sexuality as a concept, right? It sits in categories of gender, gender definition, biology. It sits in categories of expression of sexuality. There's unique things about us as sexual beings that we have associations, connections, attractions to others. We form some kind of relational connection with others in the sexual category. In our lifetime, not that old, but in our lifetime, what a radical shift and redefinition has taken place in our lifetime. There have always been things that have been conversation pieces in this category. But today, the common discussion is in a totally new area. This whole concept of sexuality has been picked up and moved. It, it no longer answers to a center that is about glorifying God. It answers to something Else. And so if you want to know why it sounds the way it does in our world today, this is a very simplified explanation for why. 
because it used to answer to this being the center. Now it's been moved. And in the big picture, it, it is either a sexuality is either a God-centered thing or it is a man-centered thing. Now, in the man-centered realm, you might get a bunch of different, we're all in the same neighborhood, but we don't all live at the same address. We kind of want it this way, some want it that way, some want it that way. But it ultimately answers to man. So this thing that God created now answers to something besides the creator. Right Here is a very brief presentation, and the Bible is simply clear in this, of human sexuality. This is where sexuality comes from. This is what God created, Genesis 1, 27. So, God created man in his own image. That's huge. That's huge because that explains why we are the way we are and why we're, we're uniquely made in all of God's creation. We are image bearers of God. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. All right, what came first, male or female or the image of God? Well, it seems as though they're related to each other. For God to create something in his image, it required that there be something differentiating male and female. Something in God's creation needed a male dynamic and a female dynamic in order for his image to be seen in his creation. And so therefore, he designed man, who is the image bearer of God on earth, to be male and female. These things are related These things have definition. They are not the creation of man. Man doesn't own the rights to explaining, defining what it means to be male and what it means to be female and how sexuality gets expressed between them because God is going to unpack that further as well. So this whole category of sexuality, it was centered on God and his purpose from the very beginning. I'm picking this one area because it's just, it's everywhere. And and your kids are interacting with it every day. And and it's hard for them to find definitions for these things. But, But hopefully this is a simplified understanding that what's at stake here is the image of God. Keith White, that sounds dramatic over the top. Uh, I didn't say that. That's Genesis 1. That's God saying the male, female thing. That's my idea. It is a means of imaging myself into my creation. And I've got to believe he means don't mess with it. Genesis 2, verse 20, gets a little bit further. Than that. Now you get the sexuality dimension, the relational dimension between man and woman. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So there's a, a suitableness that Eve uniquely has for Adam in this regard. That means Adam can't have best friends, can't have a bowling night with the dudes, but there's something about Eve that God has uniquely made in their relationship for each other. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then... 
the man said, this at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. That is the definition and the center for sexuality. Then the Bible interacts with that topic throughout and it uses a term called sexual immorality. Can I, can I just say this? Sexual immorality is recentering sex on something else. It is taking what God said was about his glory being imaged into the earth and picking it up and moving it to another address and saying, no, this thing answers to man. And and the second it does, and, and this is the thing that's a little bit challenging today. We are not the first generation to interact with this topic. Right? I mean, there is this shock value of same sex attraction as though that is so unique in our time frame that it needs to be given its own unique treatment. It's not new. It sits under the heading of sexual immorality, recentered sex. And there's always been recentered sex. And whether that recentered sex is in the form of pornography, that's recentered sex. Immodesty, where the, the attempt of a presentation physically is to allure sexual desire in others, that's recentered sex. That's not what God had in mind when He created this. The idea that someone would have urges and desires inside of them that builds up to a point where they feel the need to encounter another human being in a sexual way, that didn't just happen at the turn of our century. That's always been present. Well, 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 now it's same sex. Okay. That's not really new either. That's, that's been happening for a long, long time. It may not be as common as the sexual immorality that takes a man and a woman and says, you know what? I'm not worried about the whole marriage thing and the purpose of God. I'm going to pick up sexuality and I'm a man. And if I can just find a woman, that's what it's about. It's about, it's about our relationship. It's about a unique connection. It's about pleasure. That's re-centered sex. And, and listen, this doesn't just sit in the sexual category because all this is, and, I, and this is what's in the culture, it's almost as though, but you can't tell people to deny themselves. You do see where I'm going with that phrase. Well, the second a person has a desire to go outside of their marriage with another human being, same sex, opposite sex, no matter who it is, you have to decide what's at the center. Because if at the center is the glory of God, then I am in that moment going to have to deny myself because I want to do something else besides glorify God. Listen, that's, that's true if the impulse on the inside of me is, I would like to steal your car before you leave here today. 
I feel strongly about that. I've seen some of your cars. (laughs) And if you don't beat me to the parking lot, it won't be there when you're... I I feel strongly about that. Um, Anger. The Bible doesn't say, oh, no, that doesn't even exist. Oh, no, no. No, it says, be angry and do not sin. Oh, wait, wait. So I could have this like impulse on the inside of you that I just want to drive a chainsaw through the forehead of you? Yep, you could feel that way. But that forehead was for something else besides a chainsaw. So it's, it's got a purpose to it for the glory of God. Do you, okay, I'm going to deny myself and glorify God and put my chainsaw away. Now, remember where all this stuff came from. It came from a being who said, I don't want to do it the way God said. It came from a being who was told, you don't get to be number one. You don't get to gather creation before you in the recesses of the north and call assemblies that are all about you. You don't get to do that. You don't get to be worshipped. Oh, but I have this impulse in me. I'm really attracted to being worshipped. Does that make any sense? That God now says, well, if you really, you know, Satan, if you really, really want this, if it's really, really an attraction on the inside of you, well, it really, really was. And that one act plunged the world into darkness. It was an abandoning of the ultimate purpose of God, that things exist for his glory. And out of that, Jesus said, I'm telling you these things for your joy. If you relocate the center, you will abandon God's purpose of joy in life. And I realize for some who struggle in some of these categories, uh, everything I'm saying sounds a lot more simple than what your experience is. And and I understand that. I mean, I've got got different categories than you have, but I've got categories that don't want to cooperate with where the center is. I battle plenty of times in my own categories that I want the center to be right here. And whether it is me chickening out, uh, I'm walking with Jesus and Jesus is saying, ah, what shall I say, Father? Spare me of this? Oh, that sounds like a good idea. That's exactly what I'm going to pray. This situation, I want this situation to be about something for me that makes sense to me and that I have urges for. So God, I would like to ask you, don't let it be that. I want it to be about this. So whether it is my categories or your categories, the argument is we're all looking to hijack the center and to make it man-centered, even if the version of man-centered is Keith's version of man-centered and yours is yours. But at the end of the day, there's an ultimate reason why anything exists for the glory of God. Keith, you can go ahead and come back up with the team. All right, so individually, I need a a center. I need something that everything answers to in my life. As a disciple, Jesus has given me a summons, a calling. Come to me. Come and be my disciples. Discipleship needs a center, a center that explains everything else that's going on in our world. 
This is true whether I'm individually thinking about a relationship with my wife, my children, friends, people you work with, strangers, achievements, goals, talents that we have, unique ways that God has, has given something to each of us. But then it's also true for whatever we're doing here. Hey, Lakeview Christian Center. What's at the center? Why, why do you do all this stuff? Why are you here this morning? Why are you gathered together in this room? And you do that every week. Why do you do that? Take a break. Don't do that. Do something else. Why do you get together in small groups and connect in relationships? Why do you invite people to an alpha course? Why are you doing any of this stuff? For the glory of God. Lakeview Christian Center exists for the glory of God. Now, next week, we're going to take apart the description of fruit bearing that is in this. And there's a goal that God has in what we do, that we bear fruit. But ultimately, the reason why we bear fruit is for the glory of God. So I can think of no greater thing to, to grapple with. And, and quite honestly, we're all wrestling with this every day of our lives. What's going to be the center for whatever it is I'm putting my hands on? Whatever, whatever absorbed you this week, whatever is weighing your heart, whatever is causing you to, to say, now, now is my soul troubled. Okay, those are the hardest moments. What are you seeking? in that moment what's the creator seeking in that moment let's stand up together Father, it would seem clear from your word that before the human drama unfolds, Adam and Eve have a storyline. There was already a being that you created with a purpose and boundaries and intentions. One that we trust and believe, Lord, would have been totally fulfilling for that creature. But he said, not for me. I want something else. Lord, he plunged all of us into that same temptation. To want something else for ourselves. Then you show up in our lives and you say, come to me. Come to me. All of you, wearied, heavy laden worn out by trying to make all the universe center on you. Take my yoke and learn of me. Lord, what we learn today is you have intentions for our lives. We are branches. You, our source of life. Our father is a vine dresser. 
Lord, all throughout this room this morning is a father being intentional towards his branches, his sons and daughters. No one forgotten in this room, Lord, not a person whose life has escaped your intentionality. Even those who feel like their soul is troubled, you are at work in that moment, Lord. You are intentional. You have fruit to be born and glory to be realized. Just ask for two thoughts before we close. Jesus' invitation to him is this wild abandonment of ourselves to him. That's what it is. It is contemplating the greatness and glory and worth of Jesus Christ above everything else and saying, Lord, I just, I yield everything about me to you. Everything about me. Lord, not my will, but your will be done. That's how Jesus said, come to me. This morning, if you are pondering God, you're thinking about how to connect with God, you know you need him in your life, tell God that, Lord, if you mean this, if this is in your heart, God, I realize you created everything for a purpose. There's no accidents in your universe and I am not an accident. You have made me uniquely for a purpose. I want you to be my father and I want to know that purpose. I want you to bring me into that purpose. I want to give up whatever purposes I've had myself and surrender them to you. Not my will, Lord, but your will be done. I, I, I want to know the joy that comes uniquely through bringing glory to your name as you created me for that purpose. So this morning, Right here this morning, God, I just yield to you. I surrender my life to you, Jesus Christ. Come, be the vine, be the source of my life, be my Lord. Give me your Holy Spirit. Fill these branches of my life with your presence and your life. I want to live for you for this day forward. God, I pray for those this morning who are here. That they're saying, now is my soul troubled. Now, right now, just what I'm going through. My soul is troubled. Oh, Lord. Somehow Jesus saw something so rich, so powerful, that no matter what he faced in that moment of trouble, his prayer was, Father, glorify your name. In this, in what I'm walking in, glorify your name. 
I think there's some folks here this morning, maybe this morning God wants to put something in the ground for you as a, as a remembrance moment. For you to say, yeah, that, that morning was a moment I, I, I just surrendered to God. I just, I took this troubled moment in my life and I just surrendered it to God. That's powerful. That's a posture that's powerful. God, I pray for some this morning who are paralyzed. They're just paralyzed. They're just not moving spiritually because that's the thing that's not happening. Their souls are troubled, but you are at work. God, you are doing some things. You're going to accomplish some things. You're going to bring forth fruit in their lives. That brings glory to you. But the troubled soul is making some of us resist you. God, would you help us this morning? God, let it resound in our hearts that you have said these things to us, that our joy may be full. Lord, you being glorified is a pathway to joy for us like no other pathway that's available. God, just pray all throughout this room this morning. God, would you just flood our hearts with surrender, God. Flood our hearts with trust, Lord. Trust, flood our troubled souls with the grace to turn to you and say, Lord, this moment tempts me to say, God, just get it out of here. Stop it. God, instead I say, Lord, let your will be done. Let your glory come in this moment, in this season of my life. So if you're here this morning, you want some prayer in those categories. Come meet with God before you leave. I want to ask the prayer team to just come be available to pray for folks that are here. Maybe God needs to do something that's specific. Maybe there's a word that you need to hear that's going to solidify God sending you into your future with some courage. Come find your way forward and just ask one of these guys for prayer. And just let the Holy Spirit solidify something that's in your life. Listen, one more invitation. If you responded to turning your life over to Christ. Can I greatly encourage you? The Alpha Course is your next step. Starts March 22nd. Come be a part of learning how God designed life for us and answering hard questions and growing in this purpose. God wants you to be fruitful and he's going to help you grow. But you're going to need to take some steps for that to happen. I know I called you up here, Keith. I feel bad. Thanks for coming, though. (laughs) Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for meeting with us this morning. Thank you for helping us to relocate the center of everything about our existence. We need that. In Jesus' name. Amen. And bless you guys who are watching. Hope to see you soon.